I guess I used to sort of think, oh, I can't miss that opportunity or oh, mm-hmm. I feel bad saying no to them. It's got to be a yes. Um, but one of my mentors, Danae Shmulian, um, says that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Hello and welcome back to the next episode of No Need to Shout, powered by Women in Hearing Health. I'm Caitlin Barr. Today, I'd like to welcome my friend and colleague and someone who I absolutely adore, Dr. Rebecca Bennett. Beck, as she's fondly known as, is currently the Rain Cockle Research Fellow over at the Ear Science Institute of Australia, which is based in Perth on the western side of Australia, for those not here in Oz. Beck is also a director on the board of Audiology Australia, the professional association. She is a busy mum and has a really interesting background crossing counselling, clinical audiology and business. So, Beck, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you here today to the No Need to Shout podcast. And I'm very happy to be looking at you, seeing a lovely smile. But, of course, the <laughs> listeners miss out on that. So, um, bad luck to them. <laughs> I think our listeners would love to hear about you, Beck. Can you start off by telling us a bit about what makes Beck Beck? Thanks, Caitlin, and thanks so much for inviting me here today. Really exciting to be on the podcast. Um, so I guess at this stage of my life, I'm learning to master the juggle of midlife, if I can call it that. So I'm a mum <laughs> of three spirited, adventurous, loving, loud and energetic kids. Um, I'm a wife to an equally energetic, outdoorsy and fun-loving husband. Um, daughter and sister and granddaughter, my extended family are all really important to me and we spend a lot of time with family and outdoors sort of stuff. Um, I'm also a research audiologist at the Ear Science Institute in Perth, Western Australia, and I lead a number of really cool uh, research projects and collaborate with a lot of um, amazing researchers from all around the world. Uh, I'm on the board of Audiology Australia and involved in several projects working towards advancing how audiological services are delivered. And I guess while I've always been an extrovert and really loved the sort of loud, busy, human connection filled lifestyle, I'm finding more and more recently that there's this kind of little introvert inside me that just wants to find a quiet space to do some yoga or snuggle up with my babies in a big pile of books. But um, <laughs> finding the time for that is uh, somewhat challenging. <laughs> Absolutely. It sounds like a very, very busy life. And um, how much of that would you say is your own conscious building, like building that busy life and contributing obviously very much to your family and to your professional world? Yeah, I mean, immensely. (laughs) Um, So I think it's... um, Yeah, definitely. I I want both. I want a family and I want to be that mum that picks her kids up from school and spends time with them after school and does craft on weekends and baking and all those things. And I do do all those things with my kids and I love it. But equally, I also want to be um, a professional and have an amazing career and do some really cool research with some awesome people from around the world. And I do do those things. Um, But I guess what that means is we all have only 24 hours in a day. And so I use up, uh, well, 18 of them (laughs) doing those things and sleep very little. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, essentially don't make time for the kind of self-care and and rest that that people, that we all need and and should do. But I guess that's a sacrifice. It's a really interesting one. And we will get to that, I think, (laughs) that that sacrifice and how 
our perspectives on what we're willing to sacrifice changes yeah. over time. But yeah. I would love to hear Beck about your um, your trajectory then from you know eighteen year old Beck. Obviously, yeah. at some point you decided to um, take the path you're on. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, I guess I've always been naturally curious. I've always been interested in the how things work. And I think part of that, or a lot of that, it stems from my parents. My mum is very artsy and craftsy. And so I, most of my younger childhood was designing and building and making and seeing how mm. things come together in that sort of art space. Um, my dad is very kind of methodical in his ways but equally curious about the world and so I remember one summer holidays the toaster broke and so we pulled it apart to see how it works and so I think while they're both very different in that respect um how they come to that curiosity um I was yeah fueled in my curiosity from both of them in that way Amazing. Um, but then I was always interested in the science um, in school and so my undergrad degree was in science and I went down the path of research immediately and did um, a year of honours in molecular genetics but then I met this uh, high esteemed professor who told me that women uh, are not cut out for research in academia and that I should look to the allied health sciences as a more family friendly option instead in 2002 oh. so like this century Recent. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting and how <laughs> what influence did that have on you well unfortunately or perhaps really fortunately I don't know depending on how you want to look at it I it did sort of make me think and I did look at the allied healths and I was told that audiology was the most sciencey of the allied healths and so I kind of fell into audiology that way um, one of mum's friends is an audiologist and so I did a, a week of shadowing her and thought that as a profession it looked really cool and I was really interested in that kind of the helping aspect of, of our profession um, and so I did audiology and I did fall in love with it and I loved working as a clinician and a trainer and a manager for 10 years in that clinical audiology space um, but then somewhat ironically, when I decided to have my children, um, I actually pivoted back into research mm -hmm. <laughs> and ended up um, doing my PhD part time while I had my three kids. Um, and so that old professor was wrong. Women can be in research and women can exceed as uh, researchers. And in fact, research has been a really family friendly option for me um, over the last eight years. Fantastic. And along the way, I think you also did some extra, you, you trained in some additional skills and things. Sort of. Yeah. So I, I think um, my dad says I'm a perpetual uh, student. I can't get away from being a, a university enrolled student in some way, <laughs> shape or form. So after my science degree, I did the honours and then uh, the audiology master's. And then while I was working as a clinician in those first couple of years, um, I became interested in the business side of things. So I did a master's of business. Um, and then when I started working in management and, and managing a, a one of the chains of hearing clinics over in Perth, Lions Hearing Clinics, um, I became really interested in the counselling aspect of what we do in audiology. So I could see that um, audiologists and audiometrists really very much wanted to uh, connect with their clients but didn't necessarily have the skills to provide that counselling support uh, because it wasn't a focus in the courses that we do and so I went and did a, a graduate diploma in counselling at Notre Dame University over in Perth which was a phenomenal course I highly recommend it really interesting course um, but I was then able to take that learning and develop some kind of 
in-house training for some of our staff. Um, and that, I guess, was kind of the starting point for my research interests, um, because of course now, as you know, my, um, yeah, my research focuses on those psychosocial impacts of hearing loss and how we can upskill and support audiologists in um, working with clients to think about how their hearing loss impacts them beyond just hearing and what audiologists can do to support that. Mm. It's amazing. It's such an important area of work, um, as we certainly have a shared passion. But it's interesting, yeah. <laughs> Beth, because he, hearing that story, you're, you're one of very few uh, audiologists in the world, I would say, who have the kind of five-point star of experience and also like formal training. So you've got obviously the audiology, you've got the yeah. science background, you've got the business background, the yeah. counselling <laughs> Um, and then, and then the research on the end, and and I guess the key is bringing all those things together, which it sounds like you know the trajectory you're on does exactly that. Yeah, well, that's what I love about the research area that I'm in. That it's truly sort of it's truly clinical research in that the questions that we have come from in the clinics and what we see happening on the ground, so to speak. Um, but then we can also use that research lens to to look at what we need to problem solve. But I always work in partnership with uh, the clinics to make sure that whatever we're looking to build or develop to solve the problem is not only um, human-centred or sort of patient-focused, we always engage with um, adults with hearing loss when developing these things, but that also it's uh, business appropriate. So we, we can't sort of recommend some new way of providing services if it's not also financially feasible. Um, so yeah, being able to kind of wear all those hats at the same time, um, but also I truly believe that in all things life, but especially in research, it should always be a team approach. So I also make sure that when we're developing these things, I'm partnering with psychologists and GPs and audiologists and business managers and adults with hearing loss, and there's always um, stakeholder representatives on the team. Absolutely. That's a nice example of, um, you know, juggling in another part of your, your yeah. life so I'm seeing a bit of a thing coming through. um so it's really nice it's really nice to hear your your progression through that training um so tell us a bit about how what was happening in your personal life alongside all of that well <laughs> so three young kids um and very energetic kids my oldest son has uh, ADHD so a lot of um, energy and a lot of support needed in that space as well um, and so I guess a usual day for me would be at 3 30 a.m little pitter-patter of my six-year-old son coming in because he's had a bad dream at the moment he's having nightmares about bunny rabbits of all things there's a big bad bunny chasing him in his dreams um, so the 3 30 a.m wake up he falls back to sleep transfer him to his bed and then at about 5 30 a.m the four-year-old pitter-patter little feet comes in for cuddles and snuggles um, um, and then the day begins so we get the kids ready send them off to school do some work but because I really want to be able to be that mum that's also there for her kids in every way possible um, I work school hours go and pick up the kids do after school sport dinner bed bath all that sort of thing once they're asleep I come back and do another couple of hours work to sort of finish off the working day um, so yeah, <laughs> that's my life routine at the moment. Um, I must admit, a few years ago, actually, when I was working um, with you, Caitlin, um, a few years ago in, on that uh, sort of GP work, 
um, I didn't have necessarily the skills to put in place those boundaries that I needed. And I would often work well into the night or mm. I would work on my Thursday off, which was meant to be my day with my daughter um, who's not yet at school. Or I would work weekends and I always felt like I had to put work priorities first kind of thing. Um, whereas in the last couple of years, I've really kind of developed those skills to just put up those boundaries and no, no means no. And so now when someone invites me to speak at a conference or to join a meeting or something on a Thursday, I just say, no, I don't work Thursdays. Whereas I guess I used to sort of think, oh, I can't miss that opportunity or mm -hmm. oh, I feel bad saying no to them. It's got to be a yes. Um, but one of my mentors, Danae Schmillian, um, says that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Mm -hmm. and uh and that really helped me kind of reframe those decisions about putting my my family first um and and you know I always kind of thought I was already putting them first because you know if there was a fire I'd pick up my kids not my laptop so you know, I always thought I was putting them first but really putting in place those strict boundaries of no on my weekends and my Thursday off with my daughter that's yeah. just my my time for my family and only my family and no work request um, will eat into that now yeah it's, it's so interesting and a, a really valuable journey I think for people to hear about um, me included <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think I, I'm really interested to know what happened you know what happened when you started saying no D did anything happen tell me about that um, that's a really good question and the answer is nothing bad happened at all in, in fact, people would kind of say, oh, well, in that case, if you can't do a Thursday, we'll change the conference structure so that you can do it on a Friday instead. Or oh, if you can't make that meeting, we'll just send you the notes afterwards or we'll change the date of the meeting. Or, um, and so I think reflecting, perhaps I undervalued my own time and importance in those mm -hmm. interactions. Um, and so by putting those boundaries in place, even though the purpose of that was to protect my time, with, to protect my children and the time that they needed from me um, in doing so, I guess it also demonstrated to myself that I was more valuable than perhaps the value I placed on myself within those interactions. Hmm. That's really interesting. And also that, that it takes time to um, feel I don't know secure enough or confident in, in yourself to make that decision um yeah. it'd be so interesting to know though if I think women in general this is probably a common thing if we were able to make that decision earlier like what impact would it have trajectory wise like in terms of valuing yourself I think it's it's really interesting yeah though. well I think part of it for me anyway is that kind of that that juggle of juggling lots of things in a sort of tangible, physical, a time sensitive sense, but then the, the mental or emotional struggle that goes with that is for me anyway, feeling like I need to be a certain person in those different environments. So for example, the Beck that sips, sips herbal tea on the sides of the soccer field, sidelines at soccer on the weekend is, this, is true and is really me, um, but also the Beck that wears a you know, power suit at a conference to go and present to a thousand people. That's also truly, really me. Um, and then the Beck that, I don't know, <laughs> the other day, my kids were just, we were having a, a messy day. And one of my, my six-year-old was climbing at the top of a lamppost, you know, 
15 metres up in the air and people, he's a great climber, I'm not concerned about him hurting himself, but he clearly shouldn't be doing that in a public swimming pool. Um, and then, you know, my daughter was having a tantrum and the kids were just, it was, things were not going well. And so that kind of messy, disorganised, things not going well, Beck, is also true, me, that's, that's, that is me and that's part of my life as well. But then the very kind of organised, planned everything going the way I've pre-planned because I've reorganized and replanned it 10 times to make sure it's perfect for this certain thing is also really me and so I guess the thing I struggle with all of that is they're all real and they're all truly me but they're all so different that I I feel like I don't fit into any particular pigeonhole and so when I do go to a conference sometimes I feel like maybe I'm not I don't know like I'm, I'm an imposter because secretly I also have an old vomit stain on my skirt or a, you know from when my children were babies or I um, have forgotten how to walk in high heels because it's been so long or you know like there's this kind of blended version of me which is all those parts combined but then it means I don't fully fit into any one of those pigeonholes that society has sort of prescribed that we should fit into. I don't have an answer to that one. That's one I'm still struggling and working through, but <laughs> yeah. It's, it makes me think about, you know, at what point and what is it around us that makes us feel like we, that we have to be in those pigeonholes. Like if you cast yourself back to your 20s yeah. say, and you think what you knew of yourself then and where you were, what you were doing and where you were headed, what would you have said? How would you have described yourself then? And how's it different now? Yeah, well, I'm an 80s baby. So the, I was, my early teens were grunge. And so we were anti-pigeonholes. So it wasn't, it wasn't a problem back in those days. <laughs> um, but certainly, yeah, certainly I guess early 20s for me was when more sort of insecurity of feeling like I needed to conform started to kind of creep in a little bit more. Um, I just turned 40 a few months ago and so I'm waiting for that kind of, don't they say that when you turn 40, you, you don't care about what other people think of you anymore or is that 50? I can never remember which <laughs> when it's supposed to kick in. So I'm waiting for that to, I guess it, it has kind of seeped in, but it hasn't fully kicked in yet. Um, yeah, I don't know if I answered the question. Sorry, <laughs> went off um, with that one. <laughs> yeah, no, you did. You did. I'm, I'm interested though for some of the listeners who might be at a different stage of their life and, and listening to this and and thinking oh it's okay for me to just kind of be all the pieces of who I am yeah um but I'm so I'm trying to sort of put you in that mindset of what you might have thought when you were looking at others around you and were there any influences um without the r influences not influencers yeah. or maybe yeah, yeah, influencers yeah, yeah. as well <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> who, um, who helped you sort of take those steps towards accepting all the different busy parts of your life and knowing that yeah. that's part of you? I guess may, maybe not and maybe that's been part of the problem that I've had um, mentors in the professional space who have helped me develop my professional skills and my work trajectory but because it's been a professional relationship I've not seen whether their home life is messy or not. And then mm -hmm. I've had friends who I, I mean, I guess my, my closer friends, of course, 
we know each other fully and completely, but they've been friends since school. So it's, it's a different thing. Whereas other people that I've seen kind of mums that I would look up to for um, inspiration within my friendship groups, I know them as mums. And so I don't know kind of, yeah, their blended self of what their work life was or their other, the life before kids or that sort of thing. So I've traveled around a lot um, over the years. And so kind of met lots of new friendship groups. And so meeting people at that stage of our lives rather than necessarily seeing people in that blended, um, the different stage of their lives blended or their different selves blended. Um, but I guess, I guess the closest I could come to answering that would be that for myself, I have, I guess, kind of learn to just love and accept the different parts of me so I guess going back to the kind of that that concept of imposter syndrome that you hear people talking a lot about at the moment um, when I first moved into research I was concerned that I would never be kind of accepted as a researcher who could present at conferences and that sort of thing um, because I sometimes feel like I'm just a bogan from Brisbane um, I don't speak as eloquently as a lot of um, other researchers do and I certainly don't have um, all of the information in my head at all times um, but I'm very comfortable with saying actually I don't know but I'm interested also so let's look it up together or let's find out together um, and so I guess I've learned to love that part of me and rather than feeling like I need to be a researcher who is this kind of perfect mould at all times, but rather just be my version of what a researcher is. And, and that means that I do speak in plain language and I don't always use fancy words. Um, and I do sometimes turn up with a vomit stain on my skirt if I've been breastfeeding <laughs> that morning. Um, and uh, yeah, just learning to love and accept the, I guess, build my own mould for what a researcher, a working mum researcher of, um, in this day and age can be. Yeah. 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 No, it's fantastic. And I think it's important to recognise that you then become an example and, and talking about this openly. And I, and I know you do talk about life um, to other colleagues is it's a good way, I think, of showing future generations how it can be the reality how it can be yeah. yeah because as you say you know that esteemed professor things have changed yeah. but we also play a role in that change mm. yes yeah and I think it's a good thing that it's changed I think that in the past there, there certainly wasn't as many opportunities for women in academia um, as there is now and the way the system worked as far as awarding grants was sort of based on the people who had been there the longest and done the most amount of work. Um, and of course, if you're a part-time worker because you're choosing to also have a family and spend time with that family, um, then you'll never have the, you'll never be able to make up that time and have the actual number, equal number of achievements as someone who has been in the workforce for that prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but the system is definitely changing. Um, in the last couple of years, there's been some big shifts in how at least the government funding um, is, is directed. And there's a lot of steps being taken to make it more female friendly. We're not, we're not there yet. <laughs> we still have a way to go, um, but it's really exciting to be working at a time where there's some, some big steps being made in the right direction. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Beck, I'm wondering if I can take you back to the word undervalued you used yeah. before, because 
I think that concept, you, you were talking about it from a boundaries perspective and I know people like Brene Brown, they talk about how boundaries can be the most uh, generous and empathetic thing you can do to the people around you. We often think saying yes, and it's common with women, saying yes, fitting in with other people, making others comfortable is the kind of kindest thing to do. But often setting boundaries is kinder because it's very clear where you stand um, and people can decide how they want to work around that. Um, but that, where do you think that sense of being undervalued comes from? Or oh, undervaluing yourself, sorry. I think you used Yeah, undervaluing ourselves. I mean, I know in, in, in my experience in different roles over the years, a man's voice is often listened to more so than a woman's voice, um, especially in kind of higher level management. Um, and so whether that plays a role and then that kind of flows down um, to all levels of employees. Um, and I don't know, and thinking about a sort of bottom-up approach, it, it's it could even come from, I, I read a lot of parenting books because I'm parenting at the moment and I want to be the best parent I can. Um, but I, I've been reading a, a bit lately about this sort of concept of how we impose gender on kids at even such a young age. And so, um, and I, I see it when old adults, family, not family, whatever, see my kids, they say to the boys, oh, you, you know, that was, a, you were running fast and you were, um, I heard you did well at school and look at you reading chapter books already. That's fantastic. And then they turn to my daughter and say, oh, what pretty hair. Oh, what a pretty dress. And it's, um, they're kind of being trained to value the way they look rather than yeah. who they are and what they do. Um, and so I've always tried very hard to steer away from that in, with my kids. Um, but I wonder if, I mean, that's no one in particular. I would say that's a whole society um, issue mm -hmm. and whether that is a starting point for this sort of undervaluing then, if for women more so, undervaluing our skills um, and what we have to offer in a situation, in a professional situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I mean, and I'm sure at some level it links in with the imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it also, depending on your interactions, obviously our sort of life interactions over time sculpt the way we view the world. Um, and so depending on who you have worked under um, in, in various jobs. So um, while I was, uh, before I was working professionally, I, I worked in hospitality, um, a number of different roles um, while I was studying and in that area, um, there, I felt there wasn't a lot of respect for women and um, women were undervalued um, or were seen as sort of objects and, and objectified in the workplace. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas moving into professional work, um, there's certainly a lot less of that um, from what I have seen. Um, and I've been really fortunate to have incredible bosses over the years who have... Um, treated me kind of equally to the men on the team and have made space for my voice and um, given me equal opportunities to step up into management and those sorts of things. And, and they were both male and female themselves. 
Um, I will admit though, the, the male boss who was amazingly supportive and helpful had daughters himself. So I, I imagine he was um, trying to create a future for his own daughters as well. Yeah. Um, but I know that that's not the journey that everyone has. Yeah, yeah, but it's good to, to call it out when it happens and celebrate it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely.